So I've heard um, a few versions of this question, and I wanted to respond to it. The question is something like, how can I take the trainings if I can't fully uphold them? Um, and this is pertinent because we have a transmission ceremony coming up in a week and a half. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and then leave plenty of time at the end for us to bring up our questions about what it is to take the mindfulness trainings. Because it's not a trivial matter. And I'm really glad that people are asking these kind of questions. <clears throat> so I want to draw the distinction between an aspiration and a commandment. You know, we are culturally um, acclimatized to expect things in the spiritual world to be commandments. Thou shalt not, this sort of thing. But that's not what the, the mindfulness trainings are. They're not commandments. They're not behaviors that you either follow or fail to follow. They're not a set of behaviors that you are tested on, that you pass or fail. Uh, they're not a set of behaviors that someone outside judges you for your performance or lack of performance. They aren't those things at all. They are aspirations. So an aspiration points you in a direction. The, the, I think the most telling analogy I've heard or simile that I've heard is it's like the, the North Star. You know, the North Star is something that we navigate by and that points us in the direction we want to go. But we don't have the idea that we're ever going to get to the North Star. That's not its role. Its role is to help direct us. But we don't fail if we don't reach the North Star. And so it's not like a commandment in that way. There's not a failure about this. I mean, it's not something we really have to carry. The goal here is growth rather than perfection. Aspiration invites us to grow, but doesn't hold us responsible for imperfection. Um, the trainings, when we do the ceremony once a month to recite the trainings, because that's part of taking the trainings, we agree to recite them regularly so that they can continue to be alive with us, both as an individual and as a sangha. They have this phrase before each of the trainings, or at, at the end of each of the trainings. They ask, have you made an effort to study and practice it since the last recitation? And you notice that there's not um, some other way of judging you. You know, they're not uh, requiring you to go into a confessional and say that you have failed at this one for six times and that you've uh, used 412 cuss words since your last confession. <laughs> <laughs> there's, nobody, there's, there's nobody doing that. It's asking, have you made an effort to study and practice these? And you are the one that decides whether you've made an effort to study and practice these. It's in your own heart that you look. And hopefully as you study and practice these, they will continue to deepen over your whole life. You won't ever get to the North Star of doing them perfectly. That's not the point. And these, we study and practice these not to be judged for our failures, but to develop 
an underlying quality that they point us towards. So for instance, we refrain from killing to develop compassion. That's the point of refraining from killing. In reality, we cannot not kill. But we can practice in such a way that our killing is reduced and that when we do kill, we do it with full awareness and it generates our compassion. We refrain from stealing so that we generate generosity. We refrain from sexual misconduct so that we develop loving kindness. We care for others. We refrain from lying so that we develop trustworthiness. Other people can count on us. And we refrain from unwise consumption so that we can develop clear awareness. We're not clouding our minds with intoxicants of all sorts. Alcohol and drugs being the most common way we think about it, but there's far more things we cloud our consciousness with. Hatred and anger. For me, it's sometimes the New York Times opinion section. (laughs) (laughs) So the mindfulness trainings are a special kind of aspiration. They're a bodhisattva aspiration. And this is uh, something different than some small aspiration. This is a vast, unreachable, unattainable aspiration. An aspiration that's not just for our personal benefit. It's an aspiration for all beings. You know, we can make small aspirations, but what's the point? Right? So we can aspire for instance, to take the next breath. Well, it's, it's except for one breath in our life, that's a trivial aspiration. There will be one breath when we don't take another breath. But except for that one, it's a pretty trivial aspiration. Why even engage in that? Well, it doesn't do anything for us. But it's transformative if we aspire to take the ne- next breath mindfully. Can transform us. But the bodhisattva aspiration, it's audacious. It's the aspiration to take every breath mindfully. Every single one. That's, that is audacious. <laughs> and there's a reason that these are bodhisattva aspirations, why they are audacious, why they pull us towards something so enormous. They set the bar high enough that the only way we can really practice these aspirations is to do it from our true self, not our separate small self that thinks it is in a zero-sum game with every other separate small self out there. That's not a big enough understanding of who we are to hold bodhisattva aspirations. Our true self is vast enough to hold all beings and be concerned about all beings. So we don't just vow not to kill. We vow to protect the lives of all beings, past, present, future, known to us, unknown to us, 
welcomed by us, pushed away by us, loved by us, hated by us. It doesn't matter. A bodhisattva aspiration is to protect all beings. And you can't uphold that as a small self. It requires more of you than that. So these trainings, they they invite us to see ourselves in the broadest possible way, the truest possible way. We begin to see ourselves not as a separate self-individual, but as a cell in the Buddha body, all working towards the whole, the benefit of the whole. We see ourselves as a creator of actions that matter, that ripple out in all directions, When we're a small, separate self, we can see ourselves as inconsequential. What I do or say behind my closed doors doesn't matter. But that's not what these bodhisattva aspirations call us to see. They call us to see that everything we do matters tremendously. Why would we settle for taking aspirations any less than this? Because these are the aspirations that can wake us up. The five mindfulness training ceremony includes taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And really, taking refuge in the Buddha is the whole of the precepts. The rest of the precepts are just commentary on that. So what does that mean? Uh, When we take refuge in our own innate awareness, We are all things taking refuge in all things. There's nothing left out. So these other uh, precepts just become commentary on that. They tell us how to do it, how to do it skillfully. So when you know that your Buddha nature um, is oneness with all beings and you take these precepts, how could you, for instance, kill yourself? because you know there's no separation between you and another, how could you kill yourself? How could you steal when the stealer, the stolen, and the stolen from are one thing? How could you steal? How could you do that? How could you sexually exploit yourself? How could you lie when you know that there is nothing hidden. You know, we think that we can lie, that we can tell an untruth and nobody will really know that it's an untruth, but there's no such thing as a lie, really. Because when we tell an untruth, everyone knows that we're lying. We telegraph it. You know, just just think of our political culture right now. There's all this lying going on and, and People with a small aspiration think that that's getting them ahead. But really, everyone sees that there's just lying happening. Then um, it's the same for us. How could we lie when we see it in our totality? There's no way to hide anything. So what does it mean for us to take these five mindfulness trainings? <clears throat> Well, we typically think of taking the five precepts, 
But I'd like to suggest that we also really think about the five precepts taking us. Um, We take the precepts by firmly committing to study and practice the trainings. That's the way we take them. That's the way we think about it. Uh, And we don't have to be already flawlessly practicing them to take the trainings. And, and I've, I've heard that from some people that are wondering, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I can uphold that. I'm not really sure I can not tell a lie. Um, so am I being a hypocrite to take the trainings? But it doesn't require that you already be perfect at it. What you have to do is to be willing to study and practice them. And part of it is when you do tell a lie, you realize that you've told a lie and you really study what that is like to tell a lie. You feel what that feels like. You watch the consequences. You see how it affects you and how it affects others. And you don't turn away from it. That is practicing the precept not to lie. And just think of how different that is um, from when you don't practice the precept. You tell a lie and you never think about it again you think you came out ahead. But you you can practice with this when you're not perfect already. But if you know that you are unwilling to study and practice these precepts, then you probably should not take them. You know, I mean, if, if you, in your heart, say, eh, eh, no, I'm not going to look at that, then, you know, maybe it's not time yet. Maybe you're still ripening. But at a minimum, you should commit to breaking the precepts mindfully. Now, for instance, if you kill a spider, be completely aware that you're killing the spider. Completely aware. Feel what it feels like. If you decide that you want to still eat hamburger, then when you go to Safeway, don't believe that the the life of the hamburger starts in the wrapped package that you pick up. Be willing to understand the chain of the life of that animal before it ever got to Safeway and to your barbecue and to your mouth. That's practicing the precept not to kill. You know, in, um, in Tibet, they eat meat. The, the Buddhist practitioners eat meat because they're Uh, environment does not allow them to grow enough vegetables to sustain themselves. So that does not mean that they are ignorant of the suffering of the animals who are supporting them. They are killing those animals with full awareness, with gratitude for their life. They're not breaking the precept. So you don't have to be perfect to take them. That's really different to be one of the Tibetans that's eating meat because they know that their environment needs that meat to support their life. That's, that's one thing. Eating it because you prefer the taste of the hamburger over the garden burger is another thing. You know, There's a difference there. Both are eating meat, but there's a different heart to it. So just like when I, when I opened this, these are not commandments. Commandments don't recognize the different heart. But aspirations recognize the different heart. 
So I mentioned that we could allow the precepts to take us. So what do I mean by that? When you take the precepts, you step into this river of support that you didn't know existed before you took them. You feel this freedom of self-protection. Taking the precepts allows you to stop shooting yourself in the foot and creating so much suffering for yourself. Suffering you probably haven't paid much attention to. You know, you no longer have to keep track of the lies you told this person, but not that person. That's a lot of work. That's really shooting yourself in the foot. You know, how do you, how do you actually keep track of all that? I have no idea. Um, you don't have to experience the effects of last night's drunkenness. You know, you, your, heart is, your heart is clear. It, you've, you've not shot yourself in the foot. Um, another way that the precepts take us is that we have the Sangha's support. It's so lovely. There'll be, so far, eight people have signed up to take the precepts next Saturday. And that those eight people will form a kind of a family. And the Sangha around them will be a family that, that carries them along in the ability to uh, practice these precepts in ways they didn't know were possible, and that they support each other and hold each other in that. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase in, in Buddhism that you become part of the community that lives in harmony and awareness. The community supports you with that harmony and awareness. You stepped into that harmony and awareness. You, you can flow with the river of practice instead of trying to hold onto the bank while the river rushes past you. And you get buffeted by the logs and things floating down the river. You get to let go and flow with the river as the river is practicing the precepts. It's really very, very lovely. But I want to honor that it is hard to take the precepts. The decision to take them really brings together uh, uh, some threads that make it very difficult to actually make the decision to take them. Uh, Your small self has to agree to a path that diminishes its control. And our small self is all about control. Who wants to give up control, right? And it's hard because you don't yet fully feel the support of the Sangha the support of not shooting yourself in the foot, what you can feel is this fear that, oh, I can't do that. I, do I really want to give that up? You know, and that's the small self saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's a bad idea. We want to do all those things. <clears throat> so it's really hard. You know, I think of it as this kind of fever dream of our small self that, that just struggles for safety and control and fame and power and accomplishment. And this on and on and on. And why would anybody in the midst of that fever dream stop? But here you are, nonetheless. Here you are. Something has brought you to consider the possibility that you might wake up from that fever dream of living in a way that is generating suffering. 
It's very, very rare. Shantideva, an 8th century sage, told this tale of how rare it is to accomplish something like this, to encounter the possibility of doing this. He said it's like a blind turtle swimming in the middle of the vast ocean who happens to surface for a breath and only comes up once every 100 years. And when the turtle surfaces, happens to surface right through the knothole of a piece of driftwood. How rare is that? (laughs) How impossibly rare is that? And you are the turtle. (laughs) Look around. How many people are there in the world? Billions. How did you happen to come up right there at that piece of driftwood with the knothole in it? How is this possible? It's amazing. So give yourself a chance to wake up. Take this precious opportunity. So shall we have a couple of sounds at the bell, please?